If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. This is episode 233 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Gregory Postma. He's a professor and vice chairman of the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University, and is the director of the Center for Voice, Airway, and Swallowing Disorders since 2005. In 1984, Dr. Postma received his medical degree from Hanneman University in Philadelphia, and he completed his residency in otolaryngology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1993. He completed a fellowship in laryngology and professional voice at Vanderbilt University and joined the faculty at Wake Forest. He is a past president of both the American Esophagological Society, ABEA, and the Dysphagia Research Society. He is the author or co-author of more than 110 peer-reviewed publications, has edited three books, and has written 70 chapters and invited articles. He has given more than 700 presentations on a wide array of laryngologic topics. He has been selected as one of America's top doctors, a reference that identifies the top 1% of physicians in the nation for the past 21 years and was recently awarded the Ashiki Award for Lifetime Achievement in Laryngology from the British Laryngology Society. And not to mention, this was such a fun conversation, and he's such a fun guy. So I hope you all really enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good evening, Dr. Postma. Hello, Teresa. How are you today? 
I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is great. Yeah. All right. So tell the people a little bit about who you are. Well, let's see. I'm the vice chair and the director for the Center of Voice, Airway, and Swallowing Disorders at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. Been here for almost 17 years now. Uh, I spent 10 years at Wake Forest University prior to that. And let's see, now we're going back a ways. A couple of years in the Navy, paying back the Navy Scholarship Program and um, fellowship at uh, Vanderbilt University, which was fantastic. And then my resident training was a combination of the Naval Hospital in Oakland, California. And I'm a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and go Tar Heels Saturday night. All right. What what are you doing now? I'm just trying to keep my um, head above water most of the time, it seems like. The... um, it was almost odd. We're still digging our way out of COVID yeah, yeah. patients, a lot of airway, a lot of swallowing issues from uh, intubation, trachs, prolonged hospitalizations. So that's still been a, a big problem, particularly when you have a fellowship and you want your fellows to get to the best possible training and you end up, um, you know, pushing off a lot of the more interesting elective work due to people with profound airway and swallowing issues. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I just recorded a podcast earlier this morning too, and they were just talking about how, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the world feels like we've sort of moved past COVID and they were saying the same thing that they're still just dealing with a lot of, a lot of post extubation issues from, from patients. So yeah, so it's not over for everybody yet. Well, where, what do you want to jump in on first? Gosh, I thought it was, you know, when we get chit chatted uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think one of the things that surprised me, even though it shouldn't have was how much we don't know about other communities and other subspecialties, even though we work shoulder to shoulder with a lot of them. And if, you know, when we were talking and I, you know, you mentioned that you had, um, you know, you had never been to fall voice before. And we, and I had just been one of the co-directors of the meeting in Miami. And it was so exciting to have everyone, you know, hundred, several hundred people there, both in person and virtually. And then the more we got to talking, we realized there's whole groups like that mm-hmm. uh, for us. It's not just the usual, you know, how does a speech therapist find a good ENT surgeon that's interested in swallowing and voice or how does uh, uh, the converse, you know, ENT surgeons, oh, I can't find a speech therapist that's interested. Well, you're not trying. And then we, we look at this and realize we have uh, thoracic surgeons, pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, of course, um, that are doing a lot of fun and exciting things. And there's great meetings out there. Just a couple of years ago, I stumbled onto a thing called the um, Difficult Airway Society. Ah. And it's like, <laughs> wait, how do I do so much airway? I've never heard of these people before. And, you know, it's mostly emergency department anesthesia folks and they have regular meetings. And so we invited some of them to get to a meeting and this kind of thing. And you look around and there's a whole lot of that, which is, which is very discouraging. When you, when you, when you look at the, the literature or you talk to people at meetings and you realize that we're passing by each other and it's, it's just, it's discouraging. You'll hear speech therapists tell me things that I should have known about seven, eight years ago. And how'd I miss that? And I read a lot of that literature or there's a lot of people, you know, we look at areas like how to take care of our patients with chemo and radiation therapy induced dysphagia. And, you know, there's a group of gastroenterologists doing this and a group of ENT surgeons with speech therapists doing that. And, you know, we should be working a lot more 
uh, together on these kind of things. You read the literature and you say, you know, these people are like they're eight or 10 years behind the times. And then you look at some of your stuff. Well, we're eight or 10 years behind the times in this area. And it's not, it's not just a question of there's a lot of literature out there and not enough time. Uh, but it's, um, you know, our meetings, people use the term silos. I kind of hate that, but I don't know how else to, to describe it. You've got your area. I've got my area. And, you know, fortunately, speech language pathologists and, and, and laryngologists have, have had a good working relationship for years, but it could still be a whole lot better. You know, we look in the literature about Zenker's diverticulum and a lot of gastroenterologists are getting involved in the treatment and you read some of the articles and it's like, you know, I don't really think you read our literature, you know, this kind of thing. How would you say this if you do, if you, if you'd seen this article and this and that? So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to address that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's so funny because we, like you said, we got talking about the different conferences, the different meetings. And I think for so long, like the dysphagia research society was touted as only for researchers. And they were like, no, no, clinicians can come. Clinicians can come. So clinicians started going. And then, I think like Vegas voice, everyone think, or what is it now? Sin City Laryngology. People thought it was only for voice performers. They're like, no, no, we talk about airway and swallowing as well. And then I think for fall voice as well, I thought it was like super technical voice stuff. And I was like, I don't deal with like really technical voice stuff. And I was like, no, no, we deal with swallowing and airway as well. So it's interesting how some of these meetings have taken on their own little identities that have been perpetuated through like the telephone game that really, you know, we probably could benefit a lot more from going to. Yeah, it's, you know, all they have to do is pay us a little more and give us a little right. more free time and we can go to all these meetings and not have to pick right. and choose. But, but, but it's right. right though, because you actually laugh. This, I'm not on the program committee, but I'm helping with some corporate sponsorship for next year's fall voice in San Francisco, little self-serving advertisement right there. You know, registration is open. And so I was, ta- I was emailing the, um, uh, some of the program directors. Uh, Susan Schneider and Vivi Young are the primary people driving the meeting. And I said, Hey, don't forget, you know, you've got to make sure we have plenty of time for dysphagia and airway because it's the same thing. And they say back, are you kidding? Of course we know that, but it's always this little, even in my mind, after all these years, you know, you mentioned dysphagia research society. I still remember as, as a past president of the organization that some years ago when we had started the preclinical day, you know, because there was so heavy in research. Then we started to have a day um, beforehand to really emphasize clinical things. And I still remember at the board meetings, various people would say, you know, we got to be careful. We don't, we don't want too much clinical now. We don't, you know, we'd only had it for two or three years. It's like, <laughs> but everyone has, you know, their own desires and their own acts to grind. And, uh, you know, and you, you got to be honest, you can't take ego out of it. You know, everyone wants to have either them or their people or their group to be the leaders in A, B, or C. And then another group comes in. There's always a feeling of threatening where there should be more of cooperation and learning how to, how to work together. There's a society of gastroenterologists and um, gastro, uh, GI surgeons, the American Forget Society, which just got started a few years ago. I missed the first meeting due to COVID and I couldn't make the most recent one. Um, but that's a meeting that several otolaryngologists are going to because it talks a lot about esophageal disorders and how they impact our dysphagia patients. Because that's an area that um, a lot of ENT surgeons have um, kind of ignored over the years. It's kind of like we go down and we look for a hypopharyngeal pouch. And if they don't have a pouch, then uh, go to GI. 
that kind of thing. But now people like Ashley O'Rourke, who you had on your podcast a few years ago, a lot of speech pathologists and a lot of laryngologists are now doing their own high-resolution manometry, looking at the whole thing, because it's not just these separate little areas, but the esophagus, the pharynx, the oropharynx, everything works as a unit. And trouble downstream is going to affect things upstream. I like to tell the, the residents and the fellows, you know, if there's a if there's a, an accident on the freeway a half a mile ahead of you, there's no point honking at your horn at the car in front of you. It's not going to make a difference. <laughs> and we see this stuff a lot. There'll be esophageal disorders, but we're focused up here. We see a little pooling. Well, it has to be the pharynx. Well, it doesn't have to be the pharynx. Some people are aspirating. It's not just the oropharynx that's involved in that. And that's where I think um, working with um, like-minded people who are open, not worrying about who gets the credit, but worried about learning, treating our patients, working together is fantastic. Yeah. Do, do you feel like you work closely with GI? I think so. We um, our, our university doesn't have a single gastroenterologist that's really fanatical about the esophagus. We've got a couple of really good ones, but it's not their, you know, they do, they do it in good work, but it's not their overwhelming passion. And we have a thoracic guy that's good in it as well. So we share a lot of patients, um, you know, especially when there's head scratchers. You know, you get someone you evaluate and they go see the GI person the same day and then you you text each other, you're emailing or talking about, well, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? And that's fun. And that that that's challenging. And I think a lot of times when I've seen in my career where I've made mistakes in clinical management, a lot of it's when I haven't gone through the records and noticed what a speech language pathologist said a year ago or the gastroenterologists who I just didn't know they even saw them you know, nine months ago, found something out and I overlooked it. Um, when you've got a, a a team that can focus on that, you're much more likely to not miss things and get give better and faster care to our patients. I, I know you've seen it in your um, career as well, how long it can take people to find, to, to not just to find an answer, but then to find appropriate treatment for the things. And it's discouraging. It's not joyous, you know, the, you know what is it, the... um the common thing is SD. You know, that's, that's the classic as far as delay in diagnosis. And there's some great papers. This is when the symptoms started. They saw X number of doctors over X number of years before someone, Hey, you've got laryngeal dystonia. And they went ahead and treated it. But we see, we see somewhat similar things, um, in, dis, in the dysphagia world as well. People don't have a good understanding of what's going on in the esophagus and how it affects things up north. People, we don't really have a good, I think, sophisticated understanding of chemo and radiation therapy patients, which is my single biggest group. We looked at uh, several hundred new patients in a row a couple of years ago, and that's the biggest single subgroup in our um, center are people that have uh, post-cancer treatment dysphagia due to chemotherapy or chemotherapy and radiation. And, you know, we're, we're still, we're a little more sophisticated, uh, but not a lot. You know, we can do, our tools are better. Our scopes have got better pictures. Our balloons are better, but we're still pretty much carpenters with this. We stretch, we cut, uh, we don't, you know, we compensate and we don't do a lot more. And so there's a world uh, of learning to learn how to prevent this kind of thing. How can, what kind of cyber protective things can we do with our patients that are undergoing during? chemo and radiation treatment. I think Lori touched on that with the exercise things. You know, I have a slide. What will I do if I'm a head and neck cancer patient? And one of the things on the slide is daily swallowing exercises. I'm going to be fanatical about that during treatment. 
and I'm not going to stop. And you've seen it, I'm sure, because you hear it from everybody, is these delays. My record is 17 years. A person was cured of their cancer and did was doing, quote, unquote, fine. They were clearly slowly going downhill, but they didn't appreciate it. And they show up 17 years after treatment with a trach and a G-tube. And now they're looking at me. Okay, they told me you would fix me. And well, that fix, that was, that was, that needed to get started a decade ago kind of thing. And so that I, I see as an area where speech therapists and, and laryngologists and researchers, we have a long ways to go to find out how do we stop it from starting? Cause once you get the fibrotic inflammatory response going on in the hypopharynx and the proximal esophagus, you know, we're really swimming against the current. We're really struggling at that point. You know, you look these patients in the eye and it's discouraging. It really is. You know, when these people are peg dependent or they're having trouble just with their own secretions, they've had four pneumonias. You know, I'm tired of um, discussing functional laryngectomies with my patients oh my who don't God. have cancer. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, it's a great tool and it's in, in people's quality of life in most cases vastly superior, but I don't want to have that conversation anymore. I want I want um, more research and more collaborative work being done so we can try to avoid or at least attenuate that response to our own treatment. Thank you. That was very well said. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see it every now and again in the office. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's just such a big thing. Like I, I used to see so many patients like, oh, I've been, I've had a peg tube for 10 years or I haven't had anything to eat or drink for six years. And it's like, how is this happening? Like, how are these patients falling so far through the cracks. And, you know, I, I think we all know how it happens, but, you know, like you said, how can we work together even more to just make sure that these patients have this awareness of what is out there and, and their options and for evaluation and treatment. It's just, it's, it's gross. It's sad. It was, it was Monday. It was either Monday or Friday. I'm not sure what it was. And, and which we had a patient come to us has been peg dependent for six years. And he's, you know, there's different personalities. There's the person that does exactly what you tell them, the person that ignores everything you tell them. Yeah. <laughs> Not just patients, but your residents, children, right, right. your dog, right, my dog, right. your dog. It's, it's, you know, but this guy is a rule follower and he had gotten an aspiration pneumonia, was told he needed a peg and wouldn't be able to eat again. And he hadn't. And he hadn't even cheated on one occasion. It was just awful. Sarah Smith's uh, our senior speech science pathologist and she basically tells the guy, you know, why don't you try some coffee tomorrow? <laughs> you know, and he's like, what? <laughs> I kind of think that's all I could talk about in the office was I'm going to get coffee when I leave here because she did, you know, she did the modified bury this, that, and she had, I can do this. And I, and I'm kind of looking at him and we're still going to, you know, he's got a, a nasty stricture. Um, we're going to work on him, but it's kind of like, you know, you're going to have the peg maybe forever. But the fact that, um, you know, he hadn't had coffee in six years or anything was shocking. And, you know, the speech therapist that had seen him years ago didn't give him any hope. Just said, you can't do it. Didn't give him exercises. And it's, it's, it's discouraging, that kind of thing. I don't know. It's funny. I didn't think much about this till, I don't know, 20 years ago when I began to notice that my happiest patients in general weren't my voice patients. They're kind of expecting to get a 97, 98, 99% successful result in their voice and getting them back to whatever they're doing. Uh, but it's my dysphagia patients that still have pegs in it, but they yeah. can, we call it, I call it eating for flavor. 
when you could take someone who is 100% peg dependent, especially if they're, if they're even drooling or something like that, and you can make it so they can go out to the restaurant, have social occasions, they can sip a little, eat some soft stuff, do this. It's, it's shocking the, how, what a change it is in their lives. It's remarkable. And some of the weirdest things, the stories I've had several patients talk about being in restaurants and how the best part of it was the wait staff wouldn't be bothering them. Are you sure you don't want to order something? Are you sure you don't want to order something? Because several patients said they would order like the salad or a soup and not even touch it just to get them away from them. And now to be able to, yes, I'm going to have this. And they can actually eat portions of it. But you hear this and they're probably my happiest patients. And, and I just, it just warms your heart to see people that are that grateful and excited, even though we're grading on a curve. You know, we're not, this isn't the voice curve, the dysphagia curve and the airway curve, a lot more different, a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's amazing to see how far our field has come though, to be honest. I think so many SLPs and even, you know, there's a lot of doctors that just were so terrified of the tiniest bit of aspiration. And now we know a lot more about what people can handle. And there's, you know, it's a lot bigger picture than just aspiration. And, you know, I think of, you know, I think of 10 years ago, you know, I, I, you know, would recommend pegs for some patients just because we didn't truly know any better as a field. And now it's, it's great that we do know better. And we also know sort of the repercussions of what pegs can have sure. as well. So, yeah, I think that, um, I, I think it's absolutely right. I tell people, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm older than you are. Um, and you know, I started, I remember first time I aspirated a few times in my, you know, late thirties, early forties. And now, I mean, it's not rare that that kind of thing happened. I'll be in a hurry, you know, this kind of thing. I'll, I'll eating something real fast when I'm focusing on something else. It must just uh, cough. And I, so I have to tell that to a lot of my patients, you're going to aspirate a little bit, but you know, um, that's why we've got an immune system. And that's why, you know, this kind of thing, but you're right. You do get that a lot of, t- a lot of times from our ICE, some of our ICU colleagues that aren't as, they're younger, that are not as sophisticated. They, they don't want another, another pneumonia. They, they you know, they don't, nope, not going to feed them a thing, nothing, but you're right. We've learned a ton and, um, it's really, really made a huge difference in the quality of life for our patients. And that's, and that's, that's the key to all of it is to, is to get them as safe as possible without being, you know, without undue risk. And, 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 you know, but you also got to know when enough's enough. And, you know, that's one of the things it's discouraging to see that we call it the dwindles. You know, you, you're working with someone and they're slowly getting weaker and their weight's slowly dropping. And, you know, you know, they're fighting and fighting as much as they can. Uh, but a lot of times you have to do, you know, more aggressive things beyond peg, like they said, functional laryngectomies and those kind of things. Um, as discouraging as it is, you know, sometimes they're just, there isn't the choice. We've had people in their forties get them thirties. We have my, we had one in the late thirties that had like six ICU admissions for, you know, just, just horrible pneumonias. And, um, and so you know, he's doing great now, you know, but, it, but still he was a functioning businessman. Um, but he does great. He's does, you know, he's, he's got a, he's got a TEP and he's doing great and he's adapted to it. But his wife kind of convinced him. He literally, he literally, she said to me, I've told him, I don't want two orphans. Yeah. You know, I want them to yeah. have a dad, you know, regardless if it's uh, with or without your, his voice box kind of thing. And I think that's what shook him up enough to realize that sometimes that's where we have to go. Yeah. That's crazy. I don't know that I, I don't know that I've ever really heard of anybody getting a functional laryngectomy, but it, uh, I guess it makes sense. There's, so. there's some actual good literature out there um demonstrating that the quality of, when you reach that point, the quality of life is significantly better 
because uh, the vast majority of laryngectomy patients are going to um, uh, be able to swallow better than than nothing. And so, and then it avoids aspiration unless you spill your drink, you know, on your neck kind of thing. And so, which, which we try not to do, yes. or you jump in the pool. There's several, I've had several patients like to send that picture of them under the pool with some, oh, my with some bizarre snorkel apparatus. They've developed to go into the pool oh, my just goodness. to prove me wrong. Oh, I've oh, numerous laryngologists have pictures <laughs> like that being proved wrong scares the heck out of me yeah, a, i'm yeah, sure that would keep me away from the pool i think yeah yeah laryngectomy or laryngology humor that's yes yeah. I, guess, <laughs> I guess oh my gosh interesting yeah well i i mean i, I i've loved talking about just sort of this this multidisciplinary interdisciplinary team approach i think you know, I think as SLPs, a lot of times, you know, ASHA was not geared t- so much towards medical SLPs. It was very geared towards schools and pediatrics. And so it's sort of like, where do we go as me- as medical SLPs? And we didn't really feel welcome with dysphagia research society until they opened it up to clinicians. But I just love hearing so much that I think there's so many medical SLPs that want a lot more knowledge about the medical field. And we want to work close, a lot closer with ENTs and GIs, but it's interesting, you know, when I, when I talked to you before about fall voice, some of these conferences don't want SLPs to go. So it's, you know, I guess, do you have any tips for opening those doors or opening those dialogues? Cause I know I had a colleague, it was one of the GI conferences and she wrote in and just said, I would love to come to this. I'd love to learn more about esophageal conditions. And they, it wasn't that they, they just didn't have SLPs on the list of like acceptable right. people that could come. And they were like, Oh, we didn't realize you would even have an interest in this. Sure. You can come. So I, it was just really interesting. Yeah. I, I think that's a lot of it. I don't think it's uh, malevolence in any way. I think yeah. It's ignorant. yeah. You know, yeah. Um, um, and I think that's the key thing. I, Oh, I didn't think it even care. Yeah. That type of things. For example, a lot of GI doctors, you don't realize that a lot of laryngologists have a real big interest in reflux. And so it surprises them. Well, really? You know, but that's, you know, this ties into voice, airway, dysphagia, uh, a lot of things we do. There are a lot of laryngologists that, that do um, endoscopic anti-reflux procedures even. Lots more now doing high-resolution manometry. Those type of things. Um, you know, we encourage you know, that kind of thing here and we encourage it in our conferences because it's always, you know, our, our speech pathologists are better reading, you know, MBSs or, or breathing barium swallows than our radiologists are. And that's not an insult. It's just that they care more. They're going to spend a few more minutes. They're going to look, but there's a lot of people that have hypopharyngeal and proximal esophageal webs that are being missed. And it's, it's a regular occurrence that one of the, our speech therapists will text me, got a web. They missed it in, in, in patients, you know, name and medical record number. And we pull up the thing. Oh yeah, look right there. A little tiny web that, that got missed. And that's, we had one week where we had three webs in one week and only one got found by the radiologist and the speech therapist found all three. Dang so, it. so, you know, I, I, there's a, and plus, you know, um, a lot of times when we are getting a report or even looking at selected images, it's not the same as watching, listening to the swallow, the whole gestalt, the effort it's taken the patients. So a lot of times our speech therapists will say something like, yeah, I think we're missing something else. Or, yeah, I think we need this. Or, you know, I think there may be a motility issue involved. And so we'll get high resolution of the esophagus, these kind of things. But I, I found that the, I won't say the more the merrier necessarily, but it's certainly the more the better. You know, and, and our biggest problem now is our GI people have such a big center, they're in a different building. And so now it's actually painful for us, 
You know, uh, used to be you just walk down the hall practically. Yeah, yeah. Now it's across the campus. <laughs> it's not just a little boat, it's way across the campus. Yeah. And so it makes it makes things a little tougher, you know, when you have people spread out and and you can have virtual multidisciplinary thing. That's just kind of what we do is we'll have patients, we'll be sending emails, you know, someone's coming from somewhere, we need these tests scheduled on one day and boom, boom, boom. And we get those things going, but it's a lot harder when you're not physically, you know, right next to one another. And so that becomes difficult. But as far as the big picture with, with other societies and other groups, you know, that's difficult. You know, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be the only person there. So you get a few of your buddies and go that kind of thing. And that's the way the DRS was for me. You know, there were only a few surgeons, the first one I ever went to. And, you know, after a period of time, there got to be more and more. Uh, the Forget Society, American Forget Society, same thing. There's very few NDC surgeons, but you go, you talk. And the fun thing, if, if you're, if you're reasonably aggressive and you ask good questions or have good comments, you know, people are going to seek you out. They're going to, they're going to want, Hey, why don't you come next year? Why don't you want to give a talk on this? Do you want to sit on a panel about this? And those are kind of the ways uh, that a, a lot of people can get involved. I tell all my, my fellows and people that are in academics that, you know, you got to show up. You got to yeah. show up. You got to be a part of these things. You have to, you know, talking to people after presentations, you don't have to get up to the mic, but, you know, during the breaks, you know, Hey, I love what you said about this and this. Have you thought about that? And say, dang, I never thought of that before. Yeah. We just started studying that. Do you want to work on this? And it's really remarkable how just a few calls or just a little bit of questioning, this kind of thing can get you involved in, in, you know, in these kind of areas. And, you know, with COVID finally going away again, you know, you get to travel more again. And that's a lot of the fun is, to, is, is in academics, particularly is you want to go to meetings in fun places, meet new people. And the further away it is both academically, you know, pulmonary and GI are further from, you know, me than speech therapy or geographically Asia and Europe. There's such a different point of view. And so one thing I found out a long time ago as well was I learned more in the GI and pulmonary meetings than most of the laryngology meetings. And I learned more in the laryngology meetings overseas. You know, some of the stuff's crazy. Yeah. Some of the stuff's yeah. crazy that we gave, we stopped doing, you know, because it was, it didn't work. But a lot of times you'll, you'll hear these things like, you know, we got to look into that or there'll be some clinical problem. And, you know, I could take that idea and adapt it to this other thing. And so, and then you start talking, then they want you to come over there and speak. Then you get them to come over here and speak. And it's kind of, what's that like um, cross fertilization of people, even the same disciplines. I mean, you know, you look at the, uh, the dysphagia care in Japan and how just incredible they are there. You know, the stuff they've done there, you know, is just remarkable with a lot of their, um, their uh, chronic care facilities, their nursing homes, you know, they, they really led the way. And a lot of this stuff 10, 15 years ago and, and the understanding of the oral flora and aspiration pneumonia, the importance of exercise in these kind of folks. And, you know, it, we got to be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I know that's, it's so interesting. I came across a paper, it was maybe a few months ago. I was doing some research to submit a proposal for the ASHA convention. It was like this paper out of Italy. And I started reading it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like every theory I've ever had. <laughs> and I, like, I reached out to the guy and he like, couldn't have been any nicer. Yeah. And he was like, oh my gosh, I love what you do. And it was like, just this whole love fest, but <laughs> it was so funny that like, I'm like, oh my God, somebody thinks exactly like how I've been thinking. And it was just this 
random person in Italy, but it's just, it's, it's funny. Like you, I, I think I just want to encourage more people to reach out and make those connections. Cause I think sometimes, you know, you said you don't like the word silo. I don't really either, but yeah, we just sort of get lost in our own little worlds. And we're like, does anybody else out there think how I think? And, and you don't know until you start reaching out and asking. So. And plus, you know, with, with, with the communication, the way it is today, uh, you know, there's numerous journals that I get the table of contents emailed to me every month. You click on a couple things and you sit there and when I'm bored, you know, I can sit there on my phone or whatever. I can say, okay, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to print this one out. I'm going to read this abstract, this abstract. And so you can expose yourself to other things. And then, you know, if you think about the world of, um, you know, Ashley's world, particularly and the group in Wisconsin looking at pharyngeal high resolution manometry, you know, the centers, there's New Zealand, Europe, a couple places in the U S, but they're all able to work together online. Nowadays, and you can send, and, and you'd laugh, but I've sent um, HRM studies to people that are much better than me. Says, "What do you think?" You know, because the data, you know, it's small. You email it away. Oh, I'll check it out. I'll get it back to you two days later. Yeah, I think it's this. Oh, yeah, I wasn't sure, but I thought it might be. But what about? You know, you can really do amazing things. Uh, several of my friends and I, we share clips and little, you know, small eight-second fragments of modified barium swallows. What do you think about this? You know, I'm really confused. It's it's totally wrong the way this looks. Or you'll have you'll have an endoscopy or a strobe, but you can take these little snippets and send them and in minutes, you know, have a have a consultation. We've done this from the operating room. I've actually received calls from several people over the years. Hey, I'm in the operating room. What do you think about this? And I've done it to people. I'm in the operating room. This just happened. What do you think? So it it's all out there, but it's a question of taking the first steps to send those emails. You know, expressing interest, but I think you're right. I think the, I think the vast majority of people, particularly in the laryngology and speech language pathology world, want to share and, and they want to teach. They want to have people join them. People make jokes when the med students rotate with us and this kind of thing is that they say, they say ENT people and speech therapists seem to be the happier people in the world. When they compare a lot of other folks and think of the personalities, there's not a lot of hate and discontent at our meetings and people tend to get along really, really well. And so that's fun. You don't see a lot of people being attacked from the, you know, from the podium. There's a, there's a, you know, there, there's respectful disagreements and people, you know, can work those kind of things out. But we're, I think in general, speech science pathologists and, and otolaryngologists are reasonable people. And I think, you know, if people want to find a collaborative person or a question or this or that, I think people are out there. Um, that will share their time and their knowledge with people. Yeah. Yeah. They help people eat and speak. There's really nothing better to do than to that. So why wouldn't we be? Yeah. Awesome. Well, I've just loved all this, Dr. Postman. This is fun. Um, no, this is great. Yeah. You, I could, I was stunned, you know, between your, your med SLP collective and your, you know, your, your different podcasts, you got a lot out there. You've done a fantastic amount of educating and, you know, there's a lot of stuff. I glance at the title and I listen. I go, no, not for me. That kind of thing. But you've got a lot of material out there, and it's it's a great credit to you and and what you set up there. Because, like I said, between you know, internet, Instagram, these kind of things, it's a very different way people can get educated nowadays. Both you know providers such as ourselves, but our patients as well benefit a yeah. lot from that. Yeah, I think you know I get I get sad when I hear people getting burnt out in the field and things like that because I think they're really. There's so many possibilities, like there's so many different niches. And even just what we talked about, there's so many different other 
professionals you can collaborate with. So I, I hate to hear that people get discouraged in this field because I'm like, there's so many things out there. So I just, I like to expose people to sort of everything and maybe get them re-inspired or reinvigorated about what we do. Cause I think what we do is amazing. And I, yeah, I just hate to hear when people don't like what we do. So. No, but I think, I think I, and burnout is obviously real. Yeah, and they, yeah. there's many different facets to it, but I, I think you're right that you've got to, you've got to discover your niche or niches and figure out how to, how to flourish in that area and keep yourself, you know, intellectually alive there and things out of work as well. And, you know, probably one, I think one of the key things I think is surgeons, you know, our younger people get discouraged when they have, we have complications or deaths and speech therapists get discouraged when they can't fix somebody because everyone wants to fix somebody. But I think it's part of burnout is, they internalize when things don't go well as meaning something about them personally. You know, they get their self image or their self worth from their results of their, you know, surgery, swallowing therapy, various interventions, you know, success rate. And that's a big danger. It's something that a lot of people do, but you know, our self worth has nothing to do with things work at you as a person and how you interact with people. And if you get too focused on getting everything out of, um, you know, your results, that's, that's going to get you burned out. That's going to get you, get you depressed and get you burned out. I think faster than most anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that something you, I know you do a lot of training with fellows and things like that. Is that something that you guys talk about a lot of how to prevent that or? I think, I think part of it in laryngology is we're really blessed because our field is so diverse. I mean that in every way. I mean, um, women, minorities, what we do. I mean, you can, you know, we call it full service, all three, you know, voice swallowing and airway, but you can develop your own niche. You know, do you want to do mostly dysphagia? Do you want to do mostly airway? But you still do everything else. And that keeps things lively. It keeps you from getting, getting bored. But the other thing is family. I really talk a lot. Like the fellows will say something, oh gosh, my, I got this thing. Go, go take care of that. Take care of that. People talk about, I want to get right to my job. No, no, take as much, take a month or two off. You know, do this, get away, bring, bring your significant other to meetings, bring your kids to meetings, you know, this kind of stuff, you know, get out there. Um, but you really, really have to try to prioritize the VAT. I think probably as much as anything else, because you don't, yeah, you, you gotta, you gotta be happy at home. Um, and not just happy, you know, happy at work. And so it's a broad thing. You have a variety of stuff at work, find good people to work with and then hopefully not too much stress. We have six kids. They're all out of the house, but you don't want too much stress when you get home. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. This was wonderful. Is there any, any final thoughts you'd like to share with the people? No, this was fun. Um, you know, um, a lot of other laryngologists out there, you should reach out and get some more on here yeah. down the road. You know, I would love to. Yeah, I'll have to have you send me some more names because I'd love to bug some more. I'll be happy to. And like I said, um, Reg- I expect to see you in San Francisco at Fall Vocal. Yes. All right. <laughs> I'm excited. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Postman. I appreciate you. All right, Teresa. Thank you so much again for the invitation. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. 
Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.